Yeah, man, we are live. It is a Thursday night reality check. We're a little bit early tonight at uh, 8.15, but we are here. And I've got a great special guest tonight. It is Dr. Sean T. Smith. Welcome. Tony, how you doing? I'm doing great, and I'm so glad you're here, man. This is going to be a good one. Tonight is called After the Disaster. And what that means is after a breakup, after a divorce, or if you're in a relationship or a marriage that you don't want to be in. So we're going to touch on all three of those things tonight. So, Sean, how are you? Doing well. Yeah, and I, I like this topic. I haven't given a whole lot of preparatory thought to it tonight. So um, we'll, we'll see how, we'll just see what comes up. But I like this idea of talking about how to get out of relationships. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think it's important. You know, it's always the, there's one thing that I always say, like the, the entrance ticket to the manosphere or men's content is usually trauma and usually trauma in a men's life in most men's life is a divorce or a breakup. Would you agree? Yeah. And divorces, as you know, can get unbelievably ugly to the point where guys are losing sleep and turning into alcoholics and it haunts them for years. I mean, and the word trauma gets thrown around so much that it, it kind of loses meaning sometimes, but when you go through something like that and it's interfering with the way you function in life, that's the definition of trauma. Yeah. You know what? There was a TED talk I saw and I'm not big on TED talks, but the guy had said like a breakup or we'll say heartbreak is the equivalent of like coming off a of heroin. It's that bad. Um, and there, it, it, it's, it's, it's physical more than it is mental. It's actually both. So I don't know what you think about that. Yeah, it certainly manifests physically and particularly with like substance abuse where, where guys will try to escape the pain of what they're going through, but also just losing sleep, losing track of your diet, losing track of your social connections. All of that stuff shows up physically, putting on weight, falling out of your rhythms. Mm -hmm. Yeah. One thing I want to do is I want to kind of go over the difference between like a breakup and a divorce. When I think of a breakup, I think of somebody that's been in a relationship whether it's long-term, short-term, it could be two months, six months, a year, you're not married. To me, that's what I really consider a breakup. And I think of with a divorce, you have more invested. So that's kind of my opinion on that. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think when you marry somebody, what you're saying is we're going to build a foundation together. We're going to build, we're going to put our lives together. We're going to own joint things. We're going to have children. We're going to have this new entity that exists in the world that is our relationship and, and it gets to be a lot to untangle. Whereas like you, you divorce or you, you break up with somebody that you've been with for a couple of years. All right. You live in your house and I already live in my house and yeah, it sucks, but we don't have to untangle all of the stuff that we've, we've melded together. Unless somebody's cohabitate. Yes. That adds yeah. another dynamic to it. Yeah. And you know where I stand on that. Okay. No, tell <laughs> us. Well, the, this is kind of a repeat of what I put in the tactical guide, but when you, okay, there's a couple of different ways that people can shack up, but you can shack up with cohabitate, I guess is a better term. You can cohabitate as part of a plan to, we're, we're, we're moving toward building that foundation together. That cohabitation is us saying that we are committed and we're going to build something together, or you can do what 
I think most people do, and you can cohabit out of convenience. You can say, well, it's it's closer to my work, your house. So let me just come move move my toothbrush into your house and I'll start moving more stuff into your house. And pretty soon, you know, people are sharing dogs and sharing car leases and sharing apartment uh, leases and sharing mortgages and so forth. And then when you break up, all of that stuff has to be untangled. And the problem with that is that when you get those entanglements, people tend to get complacent and they say, well, it's easier to stay than it is to go. And so you, you cut off your options to leave or uh, more accurately, just make it harder to leave when you should leave. Mm -hmm. In fact, it's funny. This is Sean's book. If anybody watching doesn't have it, get this book, The Tactical Guide to Women. Great book. In fact, when you were just talking, it's one of the things that I have bookmarked, which is the last chapter. Um, Actually, it's part three, how to avoid completely fucking up your life. This to me is is like this is gold in this book right here. But I've got I'll get to a few questions on this a little bit later. Um, What do you think are the main reasons for a divorce or a breakup? Now, I've got a little list here. I think one can be financial. Um, Mm -hmm. One can be cheating. Okay, infidelity, Um, complacency, like you just said. And another one would be no more physical attraction, where one person in the in the couple has let themselves go. Is there anything that I missed or what, what in your experience, what is the say, we'll say the number one reason for a breakup or divorce? Well, there's actually really good data on that from the Centers for Disease Control. It's good, unbiased data. I mean, just check in with people. Why would you get divorced? And um, the list is pretty short and it lines up with my clinical experience, which is conflict, infidelity, things like substance abuse, physical abuse. Um, just loss of attraction, I think is on the list or some version of what you said, loss of attraction, but you know, it's, it's kind of the, what you would expect. People can't stop fighting or they can't stop cheating or they can't stop drinking or, and, and that's what leads to divorce. Yeah. What, what do you think is the cause of the fighting? Because fighting is a big one. You know, let me, let me, let me go back a little. There's times have changed from when I grew up. I, I can tell you that women haven't really the base of women ha- hasn't changed as far as I'm concerned, but social media and things like that have really changed things in relationships. So how do you think that affects relationships, social media? Um, I don't know. That's an interesting question. But the first part of the question is what are, what are people fighting about? The CDC doesn't ask people, what are you fighting about? They just say, why did you divorce? And then we were fighting too much. What people tend to end up fighting about is that they weren't very, at least in my experience, they weren't very uh, thoughtful about shared values when they're going into the marriage. And so they're all lovey-dovey when it's first starting because they have enough in common and they got the infatuation going. But then as life goes on and people start really focusing on what they're doing with their lives, two people may may come to realize that what they want to be doing is not what the other person wants to be doing. And they didn't sort that out beforehand. This is one of the big reasons that I tell, I advise people don't even think about marriage or big decisions until you get past the infatuation phase and then give it some time and give it some experiences, traveling together, doing things together, having some conflict and really sizing each other up in terms of your values. You can't really do that very well when you're in that infatuation stage. Mm-hmm. And the yeah, reason, 
No, go Sorry, ahead. one last thought is just on it. The reason you can't do it very well, it's not because you're stupid it's, or they're stupid. It's because when you're in, in that infatuation stage, your brain is literally different. It's, it's deviated from its baseline. So you are motivated to see the best in them and you're motivated to show them, show them the best in yourself and vice versa. And so you're motivated not to present yourself clearly or to see yourself clearly. But then when they start to become more three-dimensional and little things start to annoy you, like that's how you can tell that they're, they're coming down off of their pedestal and they're starting to become a real person. That's when you can really start sizing up things like values. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's a part in your book where you, I think you had said, you had talked about this and said most people really don't find out to, and divorces happen in the 30s. Why is that? Let's say that again. Most people, in other words, when they get married a little bit earlier, it seems like where I read in the book where like most of the divorces end up in their 30s. Meaning most people are divorcing in their 30s? Yeah. Yeah. I think I read that in the book. Yeah, you probably you probably did. And I'm, I'm just not remembering the, the exact thing, but it would fit with people starting to discover what their life is about. Um, yeah, that's exactly like what you were just saying is that's why it kind of sparked my memory on that part of your book. Yeah. You know, so do you think that like somebody gets married in their 20s, like you said, the infatuation stage, how long does that normally last? There's been some studies on uh, serotonin signatures in, in spinal cerebral spinal fluid. And it's just a, a very crude way of measuring the deviation from baseline that we go through when we're infatuated. We don't even really know what it means. We just know that there's a little change in serotonin signatures. Have no idea what that actually means, just other than it's a deviation of a baseline. And uh, between six and 18 months is the number I seem to remember on those studies. Mm-hmm. All right, let, let's go back to the fighting thing. <clears throat> in your experience, what is the number one cause or the biggest cause of people fighting when you do couples therapy? Man, that's a tough one to answer because when I'm working with a couple or with anybody, but when I'm working with a couple, I'm really trying to find patterns. I'm really trying to drill down on that couple's individual patterns that, that they have created because every, every relationship is like a beautiful, unique rose or something. I don't know. But everyone is, is completely different, even though you could probably say, well, there are some some general umbrellas. They fight over the, the fact that they uh, can't communicate very well, or, or they fight over money, or they fight over uh, jealousy, or whatever. But I, I, because I'm working with individuals versus like an academic who's working with populations, um, they can come up. They can look at a population and say, "Okay, here's a trend." I, it's really hard for me to look at the individual couples I work with and say, "Okay, here are some trends," because each one is completely different from the other. I don't know. That's a very satisfying answer. Yeah, no. I mean, I I guess every case is different is what you're trying to say. Yeah. So let me let me see if I can make it specific. So one couple might come in. Let's say we have two couples and and they fall under the, the heading of they don't communicate very well. Well, maybe one couple you have two people who are a little bit withdrawn. They're not real expressive. They're they're more stoic. And so that creates room for them to each project their insecurity onto the other when the other one is being a little bit quiet. So the wife is being a little bit quiet. The husband looks at her and says, oh, well, she's, she's um, 
angry at me because his experience is that any woman who is angry is who is quiet is angry. And so he's projecting that onto her and she's creating a, a blank screen, screen for him to do that and vice versa. Maybe another couple, they're, they're more demonstrative and they're more uh, emotional, ex- emotionally expressive. And so whereas these two are, the first two are going in, in opposite directions, withdrawing from each other, these two are coming right at each other. And so their, their conflict tends to be more in your face, uh, really bumping up against each other. And the communication could be just as poor and just as vacant as the other two. It's just that there's a lot more words going back and forth. So you could look at those two different couples that look entirely different and you could say, well, they both have communication problems. Yeah. And how do you, how do you fix a communication problem? I mean, what is the, what's the, what's like the best thing you can do to open up lines of communication? Because Everybody knows those couples. I mean, I've, I've known them and, and say these people, like, how can they live together? Like, they never say anything to each other. You can tell they're unhappy. So how does somebody open up lines of communication? Is there, an, is there a formula for that? Is there a way that you can, like, do you make a time at 7 o'clock at night? We're going to talk about bills or we're going to talk about our relationship. Or should you do that? I don't personally get that directive because I, I treat my clients, um, you know, they're adults and they can make their decisions about if they want to have a weekly meeting or whatever. I don't, I don't suggest things like that. And in fact, um, it's, I'm going to rip on some other therapists out there. It's the mark of an amateur when you go into a therapist and they say, well, you just need to have a date night. And that's very common advice. I hear that all the time from people who've gone to therapists that, that weren't very um, effective for that particular couple and the intervention, you just need to have a date night. The problem with that is if you're working with a couple and you haven't identified what's going on with them and you send them on a date night, well, what have you done? You've put them out there in the world. Now they're, they're stuck together in a public place in a restaurant and now they can, now they're going to air their grievances. This is terrible. Like you, you, you're just setting them up for failure. So this is one of the reasons I don't get real directive. What the way I do, the way I work, and, and there are different, lots of different schools of approaching these things, but I think that anybody who really knows what they're doing, um, no matter what kind of school of thought they come from, they're going to end up looking basically the same. It's sort of like martial artists. It, it doesn't matter where you train. If, you're, if your training is good and you really know what you know, the people who taught you knew what they were doing and they gave you some philosophy and some, some technique then the person from this school, his fighting is going to look pretty similar to the person from that school, even though they have completely different names on the front of the building, right? So a good couples therapist, and I don't even like that term, um, but a good couples therapist will start by just trying to collect the data and see where the patterns emerge. So when are you fighting? What's going on? And what will inevitably happen in the room with the couple is that they'll start fighting with each other. Not to the degree that they do at home or, or what, whatever pattern they have at home will start to reproduce itself right there in the room with you. And then as a good couple service, you can say, all right, let's slow this down. Let's just, and then you establish beforehand that you have permission to slow things down. And you can, you can really check in on what's going on for each person, what they're trying to accomplish, which is really important. And if you can get each of them to understand what the other one's trying to accomplish, then the beautiful thing happens where if you're 
if you're good at what you're doing and if you're a good fit for the couple and if they're both motivated to be there, they start fixing themselves. And it's really just a matter of me pumping the brakes, trying to notice the patterns that have escaped them because they're in the middle of it and um, you know, giving them the, credit, the benefit of a doubt that they're not trying to hurt each other. They're actually trying to accomplish something with each other. Let, let me ask you a question because I've noticed this with myself in relationships and other people with relationships. You start out, of course, like you said, the infatuation phase and everybody's just so happy, but then you get used to each other and then you kind of close down and then you're almost afraid to open back up because I think either party wants to show weakness at that point. That's kind of my personal observation. In other words, um, you don't feel like you can talk to that person like you did in the beginning, mm -hmm. you know, all lovey-dovey and all that stuff. Do you find that kind of a thing also? Because I, in personal experience and from what I view in other couples, I see that where they don't look like they can they basically built their own separate lives and yeah. no longer is it, is it, you know, us, it's kind of me and you. So I think that might be an issue. Again, that's my personal. Knowledge. Yeah. And I had an interesting exchange with a guy on Twitter and I don't usually um, engage too much with anonymous people because I don't know what they're up to, but this guy seems like a good guy and we've had good exchanges in the past, even though I don't know who he is. And I had posted something about, couples therapy and um about it not working because somebody it doesn't matter somebody approached me one time and said couples therapy doesn't work and and i had just posted on twitter that somebody had told me one time that couples therapy doesn't work and he um this this good guy good anonymous guy on twitter he approached me and said well it's true isn't it that couples you know if you look at the numbers couples therapy really doesn't work and it doesn't tend to work very well when it gets to the point that you're describing where people have just gone on their own directions and they're starting to resent each other. They don't respect each other. And so when people come for couples therapy and the relationship is already dead and they're saying, hey, can you help us breathe some life into this corpse that's already stinking and rotting on, on, in the dirt? Yeah, it's, it's kind of a tough call uh, or it's kind of a, a tough job. It's, it's difficult. And yeah, you know, and I've been straight with people in the past. You know, it seems like you two really resent the hell out of each other. And they'll say, "Yes, we do." And I'll say, "Well, I don't know what I can do with that." Um, and that, uh, that's, that's been that's been very rare. Yeah, that, that's, that's got to be tough for you though, because when somebody comes to you for help, I think a lot of times, am I correct in saying they're looking for the magic potion, or like it's up to you? sean smith to bring us together do you get a lot of that i get some of that i don't know how much not i get some of that but um usually what i get and i would let me try to put a percentage on it. i would say 80 percent of what i get is couples who are coming in and they're actually willing to work and they're actually willing to internalize responsibility until it gets really tough and that's where then i have to help them out but yeah, most people who come to therapy, at least in my experience, are are um, working hard to make it better, and they just haven't found the answer yet. And if I can if I can just slow things down for them and try to identify the patterns of what they're trying to accomplish, then then they usually get back on their feet. Yeah, um, I guess I got a, just the main question: When do you go to therapy? Is it mostly married people only, 
or like we talked at the beginning, what about somebody who's who's shacking up cohabitate? It's interesting because um, just recently, I don't know why this is happening, but recently I've gotten a lot of couples who are doing premarital okay. premarital therapy. And it's such it's been different work for me. Um, and it's, it's really rewarding because these are two people who are really trying to build a, a foundation. They're still in that um, idealistic phase. And so they're willing to work, work really hard. And I've noticed with these couples who come in as part of their their process of building this relationship that we are really quickly able to identify what might get in the way for them, patterns that might get in the way, like stuff that they're, one person's bringing from their family, lessons that they learned there about how to do relationships, or one person's bringing something from their previous marriage into this marriage. And I'm not really sure why it happens, but that stuff tends to come up quickly and easily. And it tends to be very easily resolved. If you can catch it in the beginning, then people go, oh yeah, I didn't even know I was doing that. So let's make sure we don't do that for the next 50 years or however long we're going to be together. Mm-hmm. Let, let me ask you a question about that. So somebody's doing premarital counseling. Do you advise them to like get rid of all their skeletons in the beginning? Like body counts, things like that? I'm, I'm thinking about that question. So, well, no, the answer is no. I don't, I don't <laughs> give that kind of specific recipe to people. Okay. Because but, to me, it's like... <clears throat> It's almost like going, going like to a priest and like, you know, I'm going to say my, like anybody getting married, wouldn't you want to know about somebody's past? I know a lot of times, oh, their past doesn't matter, but I think pasts do matter. That's sure. my personal opinion. So let's say you come across, you know, we know men and women are different, man. I'm not going to, I'm not going to say that they're not, but so let's say a woman has like a real shady past. How would you advise somebody premarital, the man premarital to deal with that? So the way that would probably show up in the room is him expressing some concern or anxiety about her past. And I'm not there to be judge and jury and say, well, you need to divulge your past or you need to drop it. I'm there to help them negotiate how they're going to handle it because it's going to be an issue going forward. And every conflict that you have at the beginning of the relationship is is an opportunity to figure out how you're going to handle conflict going forward. So if you have something like that, that shows up at the beginning of the relationship, good, let's figure out if you can handle it, if you two can negotiate your way through this and how you're going to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because I think, I think a lot of guys, you know, you'll look at like, I've seen this, you know, I've seen where like the, the pastor married a porn star, stuff like that. And I'm like, that's to me, that's just like, I don't know. It's just, it's just not realistic. I mean, you know, I believe God forgives sins, but do I have to? (laughs) (laughs) You don't have to marry it. Yeah. I mean, to me, that's kind of, that's kind of my thought on that. Yeah. Or to to put it a different way, you'd have to marry somebody whose values are diametrically opposed to yours. And that can feel really exciting in the beginning. You know, you and me against the world and all that silliness, but that, that gets old real quick. Yeah. I mean, is that reality? I don't know. I mean, I think there's, there's levels to me, there's levels of somebody's past. I I believe in, you know, everybody makes mistakes and everybody has a past, but how much, how much do you have to accept, especially as a man, how much do you have to accept? You know, me being older, 
I've got to accept a lot more with a woman that's in her, say, in her 40s than a guy that's in his 30s would have to accept with a woman that's in her 20s. Sure. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, so I think there's levels to that for sure. So, mm. you know, where do you draw the line is my question. Like where, you know, does it matter on age, do you think? Well, yeah, I think what you said is, is why is people, the older you get, the more history people are going to have. But I think what, part of the factor there, or, or part of the, one of the variables is, have they done the work on themselves? And have they, whatever they're not proud of in the past, have they come to terms with it and decided what they're going to do differently and figured out why they did it in the first place? Yeah, I, I don't think it's, I mean, you can let me know about this, but I think what happens is with a lot of guys, they want to, you know, it is the, we'll say the save a whole theory. It really is. And, you know, I don't mind being so blunt, but there are many guys and I've had friends who say, oh, I can change her. I can, you know, she's going to be this or she's going to be that. And it's clearly not going to happen. So how do you deal with a guy that's thinking like that? Yeah, guys, guys like to rescue, don't we? Yeah. We like the single moms. We like the, the troubled women. We, we like somebody, you know, a little broken bird that we can swoop in and, and protect. <clears throat> oh, that's great. That's a great way to put it. And why is that? Why do you think that is? Is that like, I don't know if that's, is that natural instinct? Is it, is it built on us, in us to protect? I mean, I think it's built in us to protect, but I think that's taking it to the next level. Yeah, I think it's in our, our DNA, literally. This is this is, you know, this is part of being a male. Is that you have these predispositions, and it's socialized into us. We're the rescuers. Yeah, and that that's a tough one on a, on a lot of guys. I think. Yeah. Um, I want to ask you a question too about since we're talking about breakups and divorce, I think that this can be an issue too. A guy comes into the manosphere, finds the red pill, and he has his red pill rage and muscles, and all of a sudden he's going to dive into this relationship or his marriage that he's in and where he was never the leader before. Now, all of a sudden he's the leader. He's the alpha male. He's going to shove this shit in her face. How, how, how does, I mean, have you seen that? Because yeah. I've seen that. You know? Yeah. I'm curious what stories you, what you've seen, but I've seen some, I've seen it work out poorly for guys. And I don't know how many guys it's worked out well for. There may be 10 million guys out there that that's worked really well for. But the stories that I hear, of course, I hear about the problems is when, guys swing from one extreme to the other like you're talking about and the woman's going what the hell's going on here what, what is this and she doesn't know how she doesn't know what he's trying to accomplish she doesn't know that he's trying to solve problems to her it looks like he's trying to create problems mm -hmm. um, what have you seen well I, i've seen where like he's never been a leader before and he's never um how do i put this he's never been that guy to where he makes the decisions and all of a sudden he's making decisions. He was more of a happy wife, happy life guy. Oh, and that's my favorite stuff. phrase. Yeah, me too. <laughs> you know what I mean? So all of a sudden now he's telling her to do this, to do that. And you know, what's funny is too, even like I've had local friends reach out to me and I've had buddies say, Hey, you know, this guy's going through a breakup or he has an issue. I want, I want you to talk to him. And I'm like, what the hell can I say? Like, you know what I mean? And so I've had, I've had friends of friends and we'll say acquaintances reach out to me for stuff like this. And, 
And to me, I've always been like, I want to say something like, no, don't do that. Like, but I, I kind of back off on that. So people have put me in kind of an expert because I talk to guys like you and I think they've seen changes in my life, but people tend to put me at like an expert where I can give advice and I don't do that. Yeah. Um, like I say, you know, I've said it a million times on this channel. I give support, not advice. And to me, support is just being there for somebody and being here. That's what support is, being here for somebody. But that's yeah. kind of what I've seen is where, um, you know, guys will find the red pill, the black pill, and, hell, there's even the Tony pill now. <laughs> is there a Tony pill now? Yeah, yeah, I came up. I, I didn't come up with it. It was just three things that I had talked about. It's I called it adapting, adapting to the world as we, as it is now, okay? And then be accountable for yourself because I think so many groups are now like, we're going to hold you accountable. And I'm, I always believe that nobody can hold you accountable unless you can hold yourself accountable first. And then the result of that is authenticity. Being authentic, I think, is important, which means just being your real self. So and somehow that involved into the Tony pill. <laughs> so, there you go. But the tea so pill. Yeah, there's there's so many pills out there and I get that. And I mean, I really do believe I think we talked about in the last stream we did with you that I think the black pill is really the 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 original red pill. I think it's just I think the red pill has been totally screwed by certain people. I won't mention the names, you know, so but I think when a guy brings that into his relationship and you look at a lot of this content, you can just blow up a relationship yeah. where you I think you can kind of ease into it a little bit first. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So if you if you weren't naturally a leader in your family or in your relationship, and you throw this huge leadership role on yourself, what is your woman going to think? So I'll let you go with that. Yeah. What is she going to think? She's going to, I don't know what she's going to think, but you know, here's something that I don't hear in the red pill very much is that you can actually talk to women about this stuff. Like you can start with a conversation like, Hey, you know what? I was thinking about it and I realized that I have not been very present and I have not been much of a force in the relationship and I'm going to work on changing that. And that doesn't mean you have to tell her every little thing that you're thinking about, but why not lay a little groundwork and, and prepare her for the fact that you're going to start working on things. Yeah, I love the way you said that. Be present. You weren't present in the relationship. Yeah, that's that's gold right there. I think that's important is being present in the relationship. It, that's a part of complacency. Wouldn't you agree? Being complacent, you're not present in what's going on. Yeah, and guys have a lot of ways of checking out. You know, you asked something earlier. Let me let me jump back to uh, the thing you brought up a bit ago about social media, and. Um, it's kind of is loosely related to this complacency. There's this thing I've noticed a few times with couples where someone in, in the examples I've seen, it's usually been the woman will go out on social media and she'll do something kind of wild on social media, right? And she'll, she will embarrass him or she will embarrass herself or she'll just do something that is untoward for somebody who's in a relationship. And then the guy is I'm looking at this and he's, he's seeing it out there on the web and he's going, oh my God, what's going on here? And then he's completely on his heels because she's done this outrageous thing. That's not new behavior, 
right? That, that's, it's a new technology, but it has always been the case that when one person can't get another person's attention or they can't get their message across or they're poor communicators or whatever motivates them, that they will do something outrageous to get the other person's attention or to try to send a message. Now it's just more public, but we as a species haven't changed. And that that's very old behavior. You know, I grew up in my father's bar, which is one of the things that got, it is the thing that really got me interested in psychology and particularly in couples because I saw so much stuff when I was nine, between nine and 16. I just saw so this adult world around me and it fascinated me. And I can't come up with specifics, but I know back in that bar, I saw women who would do outrageous things to create jealousy or to send a message or to somehow communicate with this man over here. Maybe he was withdrawing. Maybe she was a terrible communicator. I don't know what was going on, but she was sending a message in public then, and she's sending a message in public now. So that's my answer to your, to your, your thought about how has social media changed things? Yeah, let's, let's move, let's move forward on that too. Um, to me, social media, I think that women look on social media for validation from that they're not getting at home. And I'm going to ask you this question. How important is it for a man, we'll say in a marriage, to validate his wife? Define validate. What do you mean? Validate would mean to tell her she's beautiful, to tell her good things about her, support her. And she's looking for it from social media. She's looking for those likes, those hearts. That's kind of what I see. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of people I know that are married, and when I see their social media, I got to be honest. I'm like, there is no no fucking way that my wife would put that shit on social media. Right. There's just no way. Yeah. There's just no way it wouldn't happen. I would be divorced. You know. Um, I just I think that women need that. I think women gravitate toward social media for validation, whether it be from other men or other women and friends, because they're not getting it home. So what do you think about that? I think there's a lot to that. And I think that there's some unfortunate messages out there, like some of the real hardcore red pill guys. I don't want to mischaracterize them. So tell me if you think I'm mischaracterizing their position, because I really don't want to do that. Um, But I think some of them would say you need to be running dread game all the time. And you have to be really careful with compliments and, you know, you don't want to put on a pedestal and so forth. And I think that's a really unfortunate stance. And even if red pill guys don't say that, I know there are guys out there who think that, that it puts you in a one down position if you tell her that she's hot and you're proud of her. And um, that's unfortunate because the thinking, I think, is that if you say that, you're coming from a position of weakness and you're saying, I'm not good enough for you. Well, my wife knows that I think she's hot and I'm proud of her, not, not just because she's hot, but I'm proud of her as a person. She knows these two things. I'm pretty sure I'm not coming from a position of weakness when I say it. I'm not saying it as if, oh, God, I'm so lucky to have you. And yeah. why do you put up with a guy like me? And all, you know, all that the sitcom crap that you that, see. That's like that's like self-deprecation, right? For somebody who doesn't explain dread game for somebody who doesn't know what dread would be. Well, as I understand it, and you 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 correct me, okay? Dread game's not a bad concept. It means that you are strong and solid and you're doing well in the world and she knows that she's lucky to have you 
and I, I'm behind that 100%. Would you say that that's a, a generous interpretation of Dread Game? Yeah, I think so. I think okay. so. I think, but I think it, gets, so. it gets real twisted real fast where you have guys that are saying you have to, you have to fuck with her mind. You, know, you have to make sure that she's yeah. back on her heels all the time. I hate that stuff. It's, it's just so dark and manipulative. And if, yeah, you're, I, if you're in a relationship, you have to come from this manipulative place. What, what are you doing? Come on. Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, that again, you know, to me, a lot of times the word game, game is manipulation and dread game to me. When when you add that word game to it, it kind of bothers me. But I think there is a bit of dread that needs and just I think it's the word dread that bothers people. You know, I I think that maybe a better word for it would be indifference. Would you agree with that or not? I don't know. I don't I don't know how you'd be indifferent. I'm not indifferent to my marriage. I, I know that we would both survive if things didn't work out, but mm-hmm. I'm certainly not indifferent to it. Yeah. Yeah. Indifference to me means like, like you said, I can do, I, I'll do, I'll do okay without you. And is that a good thing or a bad thing for your woman to know that? Or for your man to know that as, you know, as a woman? Is it a good thing or a bad thing? I think it's a necessary thing to okay. know that. I don't know if it's good or bad, but yeah, I would say it's a necessary thing to know that we are both adults here and we could both survive if we had to without the other and we choose to be together. Uh-huh. Yeah, I like that you would say that you choose to be together. Um, there, You know, there is, I think nowadays, again, with social media, we'll go back to that. You know, we talk about validation of women. I think that that really is kind of a a big deal nowadays is that the women will get more validation. A woman putting her picture up, a married woman in a bikini laying next to the pool, is going to get a whole lot more likes and validation than a dude <laughs> laying next to his pool with a picture in his in his baggies. You know, so I guess I'm trying to figure out is is why why do you think women need to do that? Are they doing it because it's a cry for help? Is it is are they not happy? What, what is the purpose of constantly posting selfies and and pretty yeah. pretty risque selfies? Yeah. Um, what is the purpose? And, and I, you know, again, I come back to the fact that I work with individuals and, and an academic might be better suited for talking about what is the overall general uh, motivation. But I can tell you, like with my daughter, we don't see that kind of thing. And it's, it's not that we're the greatest parents in the world. We try. We put a lot of effort into being good parents. And what validates our daughter is how she does in school, how she does on her, her volleyball team, how she does with her family relationships. And she really has, she has zero interest in social media because her life is in these other things. And so we've been pretty careful about steering her and giving her values such that she won't need to show her bits on Instagram so that some stranger can, can like it. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that really answers the question, but yeah, I, yeah, I think so. you're saying something is missing when you yeah, see that that's behavior. Kind of what I agree. I'm thinking is something is missing. Like, I, I mean, I do see, I see it all the time. I do. And, like I said earlier, like if I saw like pictures and and some of these things that married women post, I I don't I just don't get it. 
I don't get it how a man can put up with that. I truly don't. <clears throat> yeah, in a relationship, I don't see how you put up with it either. Yeah. I, I certainly couldn't. To me, yeah, to me, it's it's kind of rough. But to me, that shows the damage that social media is doing. And whether you can call it a dopamine hit that the woman's getting from every like that she gets. Because let's face it, you know, not just women, but everybody's on their phone 24-7. I mean, they are. You know, they sleep with their yeah. phone next to them, things like that. You know, whether it be watching YouTube or Instagram, things like that. But people live for those that validation and those likes. Yeah. And again, here's another instance, I think, where the technology is different, but the behavior is not. I was having this conversation with my with my daughter a few weeks ago where she had asked me one time, she mentioned that some kids at school, there's there some girls at school that were kissing, kissing guys, right? And she asked me what I thought about it. I didn't come up with a really good answer at the moment, but I came back to her later and I said, I asked her what she thought about it and she was a little confused about it. And I thought, well, I told her, well... It's possible that these girls are looking for validation. And I use that word. I use your word validation from boys because maybe they don't have much going on at home with the parents. And maybe they don't have much going on at school. And maybe they're not feeling very good about themselves. And we don't want to feel good about ourselves. And so for them, a really easy thing to do is to go to boys. And boys will always make a pretty girl feel good. And so there's there's behavior that... Um, is seeking validation, but it's not online. And we, you know, you and I, we were in high school at one point, we saw the same thing. And so now it's just on a bigger scale. And it's really unfortunate because it's very easy for attractive women to get that immediate gratification. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And to me, that's, I think social media is one of the number one causes for, in your practice, how does social media play into, you ever have any issues with it? Do people ever talk about it? Maybe they don't tell you about it. Um, yeah, it, it's, it has come up in troubled relationships is where it tends to come up, where mm-hmm. somebody's out there behaving on social media in a way that feels really disrespectful to, mm-hmm. to, to the other person. But again, you don't use social media for that, and, and you and I are old enough to know that that kind of stuff happened before. Yeah, yeah, it did. It did. It did. Um, I'm a, <laughs> it's funny, too, because who is at Primal Studies is in the um, – is in the uh, he's in the chat tonight, and he did a stream I had suggested a couple of weeks ago about Rivolino and the green line theories. I'm sure you're familiar. <laughs> yeah, the green lines. And uh, I, I like it. I think there is some truth to that. And for me, looking at photos of people, whether it be on Instagram, especially couples, I mean, the green line theory really is couples. So I do look at that and. What I've noticed is that when I look into the green lines on people that I don't know, I'm kind of questionable. But when it's couples I do know, I'm like, man, that's pretty accurate. It's it actually is pretty accurate when you know couples and then you can put your own green lines. You know, know, that's just a theory, but. You know, there's the green lines are so fascinating because it's complete bullshit, and at the same time, there's a little something to it. Yeah. So maybe it's not complete bullshit. But I, when I started noticing the green lines, I started looking at some pictures of me and my wife, old pictures, and I was re- very relieved. Even though I don't believe in this green line stuff, I was very relieved to see that the green lines checked out. You know, I'm, I'm, on your own, on your own <laughs> yes. pictures, right? Yeah. 
Yeah, see, I, I, and that was the thing that I was saying on that stream that I bet everybody is, in fact, Primal Studies, it was a really good stream. Check out Primal Studies, everybody, and definitely check out that stream. It was from, I think, about, I think about a week or two ago. But um, it, I think it really did kind of spur everybody to go look at their pictures. Go back <laughs> and say, okay, all right, I'm, I'm pinned straight. I even looked at pictures of like, like, like me and like, people at 21 that I've taken pictures with and who, you know, and, you know, pretty much I'm going to give myself a 98% rating where I'm pinned straight. You know what I mean? So, <laughs> yeah. so if you and I ever take a picture together, we're going to be, like, yeah, in fact, I, we do have pictures <laughs> together and we're both straight. We're both, okay. uh, yeah, we both passed the degree and it does, you know, it does work with men also, but to me, I thought it was just interesting. And I always, I always enjoy Rivolino on Twitter. I think it's, I just think it's interesting. It really yeah. is. Yeah, it is. But I, I would advise people to apply it to couples that you know. And I'm curious what you come up with, because that's what I've done. I'm like, wow, they're right on the money here. Yeah. So, but that's, you know, that's kind of funny. But so let's let's go back to breakup and divorce. Tonight is after the disaster. Okay. So when do you tell somebody or when do you go to somebody you know, being a, uh, a therapist, a psychologist, do you tell somebody like it's better that it's time to go away? It's time to split? No, I would never say that to somebody and not because I'm afraid to say it, but because it's not my job. My job is to notice patterns and help people get to where they want to get to. Um, it's not my job to say, and of course I always have opinions, but mm -hmm. if I'm doing my job right, they don't, they don't know what my opinion is unless, you know, there are exceptions. If somebody's being abused, of course I'm going to give my opinion on that. Um, but you know, extreme situations like that aside, it's just not my job. Yeah. So, okay, so now that it's over, what's the number one thing you can tell to a man to do for himself? Because I've, I've talked with this with a lot of different people. I've said this many, many times, is that, you know, I, I even talked when I was talking with Elliot Hulse about this, that when a man goes through a breakup or a divorce, they're in a tunnel. They can mm -hmm. see this tunnel vision. And as as a friend of that guy, a lot of times we can say, oh, just wipe it off. We trivial we trivialize his pain and don't understand that this is the only thing he's seeing right now. So what do you do to a guy that's in that in that position? Again, like I was talking to Elliot, there's a thing that I like to call a heart punch. And there's certain people that can take it. Like I was always the guy with my family, even my dad today, you know, he can give me what you call a heart punch where it's, he'll say something that will like snap you out of it. Or somebody will, in other words, some people can take a heart punch and some people can't. Mm -hmm. Some people can take that. We'll call it that cold, hard truth. So how do you deal with a guy that can't take that cold, hard truth? Well, a couple things there. Let me see if I can keep them straight. So let me let me do that second one first because it will be brief. There there are differences between people who can take a heart punch and people who can't. And you, you're talking about resilience. And there's a great book out there called um, The Survivor Personality by Al Siebert. And he talks about it's very, it's very easy to read. He talks about the research between people who really thrive and do well when when life hits them with something really ugly and people who struggle more. And he talks about the specific habits that the, 
the people who survive tend to have. And so it's, it's a really good book for just talking about resilience and building resilience in yourself. But to, to the larger question, what's, what's the one thing I would say to any guy who's going through a divorce? It's don't isolate. And the reason I say that is because, um, like you talked about the tunnel vision, that's 100% correct. Not only is it tunnel vision, though, it's just, it, a lot of times it's distorted tunnel vision because guys, particularly if it's been a, a, a rough marriage, guys don't have a very good view of themselves and they're disoriented and they're confused. So I, I think, and I think there are three sources of being confused and disoriented. One is just the way you're thinking about yourself, you're, the way you organize the world and relationships and what you learned growing up. And so a lot of times guys, particularly when you're at that divorcing age, 40, 50, 60, a lot of guys are still feeling as if they're 20. And what is a 20 year, 20 year old uh, life like for guys? It kind of sucks in a lot of ways because we know in, instinctively at that age that we need to provide something, that the world is judging us based on what we provide. And God, more now than ever, maybe um, the way people talk about men, but we know instinctively that we need to be providing something, but when we're 20 years old, we don't know what we're doing usually. It's only a handful of people that really have a direction and, and they're going. The rest, of the, the rest of us are just kind of muddling through. And so the guy who's 50, 60 years old going through a divorce, there's a little part of him that still feels like he's worthless. You know, he's still a worthless 20-year-old in his mind. I'm not saying 20-year-olds are worthless. I'm saying that, that that's how a lot of guys see themselves. They're just not seeing themselves as what they really are. The second source of that is if they've had a marriage where they've been hearing over and over that they're selfish, that they're self-centered, that they're narcissistic, that they're abusive, that they're a piece of crap. If they've been hearing these messages, they're undesirable, right? That's another one. If they've been hearing these messages from her for years on end, that's something that a lot of guys internalize and, and they start to see themselves that way. And then the third source of being completely disoriented is just the divorce, uh, the family court system. And ideally, a couple can go through divorce with a little mediation and behave like adults and go their separate ways. But if you end up in the family court system, even if it goes well for you, whatever well is in that system, it's still confusing. You have experts that are telling you things that don't match your reality or what you're seeing. It's just a, an absolutely disorienting, disgusting system that is there to fleece you. Mm -hmm. And so when you combine those three things and you combine that with the fact that so many guys isolate in these situations when they're in pain, that's a guy who's really at risk for things like substance abuse, suicide, going off the deep end in a million different ways. But if you can find some friends and family and ideally a group of guys who are also getting divorced, there's lots of groups out there of divorcing men just to just to have something to latch onto and know that it's going to take a long time, meaning it could take years for you to really start to eliminate that tunnel vision and start to see things more clearly. And you're just going to have to write it out. And it's a lot easier to write out when you've got good people around you. And so that's why you're saying like self-isolation is really bad because it's terrible. I'm myself, I'm, I'm a social person and I do spend a lot of time alone and I enjoy that. But I noticed if I do have an issue in my past that I do isolate, like I don't want to be around anybody. I'll do my work, but I just want to just be left alone. 
for me, that doesn't last long. I think we talked about this backstage. For me, I, I get over things quickly. In other words, I, I, I think I think I think things through. How important is for somebody to to think it through? In other words, to how difficult is it for somebody to think things through when they're when they know that it's over? Like this is the biggest change of your life. Say you've been married at in your twenties and now you're fifty and you're getting a divorce. That's a huge huge detour in what you've been going through. So how does a guy prepare for that? Is, I guess it's question. Yeah. How do you prepare for that kind of, like, especially family court? Um, yeah, you, you get some people around you that are trustworthy and are going to help you stay, stay safe and sober and all of that good stuff. But, um, what was the first part of the question? Like, how do you, how do you prepare? Yeah. How do you prepare after being like, prepare for that change in life? Like yeah. things are going to be different. Now you're obviously going to, whether you have kids or maybe your kids are gone to college or you still have kids and you got to go through shared custody. How does a guy prepare for that? I mean, how do you, you're not used to that. How do you, right. and to you, me, that's like, that's gotta be a shot. Like you've never, like you've never seen. I mean, yeah. I, I've never been through that. So I don't know. Well, I think you, it's really important to know your, the way it sounds like such a platitude It's important to know the way you cope with things, meaning, does it help you to isolate? And if so, for how long? Um, because some guys, like I'm, I'm, I'm kind of like this. When I'm trying to figure something out, I need to go for a walk. I need to have a cigar. I need to have a little time by myself. But if I'm out there too long by myself, then my mind starts yammering about how I'm being mistreated and it's all unfair and blah, 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 blah. And it starts to get really unproductive. And so I've gotten pretty good at knowing when I've had enough of being alone and when I need to get back in contact with other people. So I think from... I think for anybody, there's some mix of you need to think about it on your own and try to sort things through and you need to stay connected with other people. And that's going to be a different ratio for just about everybody, I think. Okay. All right. Well, I've got one more topic, too. And you're already in a relationship and you're in a marriage that you don't want to be in. And you can you you have to get out. How does somebody deal with that, whether it's a man or a woman? Like a lot of it's comfort. Let's get real. Yeah. I mean, there's people get very, very comfortable. Mm -hmm. You get comfortable in your in your routines. You get comfortable in just the way you're doing things, but you know it's not right, and you got to make that move to get out. I think a lot of guys are afraid of hurting somebody. How do you get past yeah. that too? Yeah, and you, you you hit on it. It's it's easier. It's less hard to stay than it is to leave. And a lot of it is, I don't want guys not wanting to hurt people. Um, yeah. Yeah. And it's hopefully you, you've made it easier by doing some of the legal work up front. I'm a big proponent of, um, prenuptial agreements and there are people out there who are not lawyers who will say that prenuptial agreements aren't worth the paper they're written on, but I've had actual attorneys tell me that they can be done correctly. And being done correctly, from what I've heard, I'm not an attorney, but it involves a couple of things. Number one, you don't do it last minute. You don't do it the day before the wedding. You do it before you even start planning the wedding. It's the first order of business. Like we don't plan a wedding until we get this sorted out. That being number one, so that so that there's no time pressure and nobody's can say that, well, I, you know, I felt obligated or pressured at the last minute. No, that's that's out the window. And the other thing is that both sides have their own counsel. 
so that neither side can say, well, I didn't understand what I was signing. And so, you know, the guys who say um, prenups don't do anything, well, go to a lawyer in your state, your municipality, your province, and ask them if it's worth doing. And if they say in this province it's, it's not worth anything, then you don't get married in that province. You, know, you, go some, you go somewhere else or whatever. But as far as exiting, it's so much easier when you do the legal work up front and then hopefully you tuck it away somewhere and you never have to look at it again. But at least you've made, you've made it so that either party can leave rather than spending the rest of their lives being miserable. Do you think, I, I, I'm going to throw this out there. I think a lot of guys are shamed into not doing it. Yes, absolutely. Not- and I have, I have strong opinions on that, that a woman will say, yeah, if you, if you loved me, you wouldn't want a prenup. And my response to that is, well, if you loved him, you wouldn't want him to carry all the risk. You'd want to put a little skin in the game. And prenups, I heard a rabbi say a long time ago that, that the, um, the specter of divorce in a marriage is a really useful thing because it reminds you that you don't have to be there. And it reminds you that you should have some skin in the game. And while I do think the, the family court system is maybe starting to turn a little bit, so it's not quite so biased against men, it's still on balance it's biased against men. And if a woman really want, loves a man and she wants to be committed to him, why would she want him to carry the risk more more than his share of risk? Why wouldn't she want to have some skin in the game mm-hmm. herself? Yeah. So are you saying, I mean, you're saying that really a prenup will show that she has skin in the game? Yeah, I, I guess I didn't say that. Yeah, I, I didn't say that very clearly, that the value of a prenup is is not, you know, I'm going to protect what's mine. It's that we're coming into this together and we have shared risk and we have shared benefits. It's not, I take all the risk and you take all the benefits. That's not, you know, what kind of partnership is that? So my answer to that, you don't love me if you won't sign it is always, well, do you love me if you don't want to put some skin in the game? Because I, I think that can be a, that can be a bargaining, a bargaining chip for a woman to basically manipulate a man. Yeah. Saying again, like you said, if you don't, you know, you don't love me if you want me to sign this. Yeah. And we know the marriage factory a lot of times is really just a money factory. It's yeah. Real and and the, divorce, marriage... the divorce factory is a money factory. I mean, it's lawyers, a much bigger factory than the marriage factory. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, lawyers are in it to make money. They don't mm-hmm. want to settle something amicably because they won't make a lot of money. Yeah. They're always pushing and pushing. Did you ever see that movie on, I think it was on Netflix for a while. I think it was called Marriage Story and it had Scarlett Johansson and Adam Driver, Kylo Ren. And it was about a couple that was getting divorced. Did you ever see that? No. It's a great movie. You know, it was so realistic because if I remember the timeline correctly, we start off with these, this couple and they're having trouble in their marriage and we know they're going to get divorced pretty quick. And then early in the marriage, they decide, okay, we're going to divorce. And then that becomes the story of the movie. And... When they first make the decision, of course, they're arguing and they're bickering. And it's very realistic, the types of arguments that they're having. But at the same time, they're, they're handling it themselves. They're doing, I think they're doing some mediation, but they're, they've agreed that they're not going to try to destroy each other. And then this is, the, this is the stroke of genius in this movie. She's with her friends, the Scarlett Johansson character. She's talking to her friends and her friends say, start whispering in her ear and they say, well, you know, 
you really should get a lawyer just to make sure it's fair. And I've seen this, God, if I've seen this once, I've seen it a dozen times where the friend starts whispering in your ear. So then she gets a lawyer. And once she gets a lawyer, then he has to get a lawyer. And then it's game on. Like the lawyers are just going to have a field day because they're going to drain your pockets. I mean, unless you get really lucky and you happen to find two lawyers who are very ethical and, and fine, upstanding citizens. But it only takes one of them to be a little bit greedy. And then both of them have to be greedy. And that, that was such a, a brilliant portrayal in that movie. So this is another reason to have a prenup is it's a chance to talk about how we are going to split if we decide to split down the road. Are we going to act like animals or are we going to act like adults? Mm-hmm. Now, I think that most nowadays, too, a lot of times a woman, a woman can be making more than the man. So mm-hmm. do you ever see the reverse to where the woman would want a prenup? Yeah, I've, I've seen it a few times. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, or she's inherited a lot of money. Yeah. Like, and same thing. Like, why should she be taking all the risk and, and he's taking less of it? Mm-hmm. Let's both yeah. put some skin in the game. Yeah. Yeah. So, so to me, um, I think the, the outcome of this is that a prenup is really just to have skin in the game, period. I mean, it's, it's prenup is part of the commitment. It's yeah, and for guys that are having trouble bringing it up, well, first of all, if she's, if you bring it up to a woman, I would, I would expect her and I would tolerate a little bit of pushback at first because what she has heard in, in society and culture probably is that this means he doesn't love you. And so I'd expect that pushback. But if she's not willing to tolerate the explanation that we just covered where, no, it's not about me not loving you. It's about us both having skin in the game and sharing the risk and sharing the benefits and how we're going to treat each other. That's what this is about. If she can't tolerate that, well, I don't know. Maybe you shouldn't be marrying her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just, um, I think that marriage has gotten so complicated now. I really do. I just think it's become a factory, a money factory. I don't think that I think that most people get married nowadays with with an out. In other words, there has to be for me to get married, I have to have a way out. And I think prenup, people look at it as an out. Right. Really, and I look at it as the opposite. Yeah, that's 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 what I'm looking at as it as it now. I mean, I really see it as the opposite, as it's it's a commitment. If you're going to get married, you're in it for the you're in it for forever. I mean, that's the point of getting married. But I don't think marriage is looked at like that anymore. I don't think that's what people get married for. I think a lot of people get married to have their, I think women get a lot of times, again, you know, their biological clock is ticking, want to have their kids, have their kids, and then hopefully they can leave with a paycheck. That's kind of what I see. There's, um, there, there was a study a while ago, and I think I cited it in the tactical guide that looked at the amount of money that people spend on weddings and outcomes. And um, there was an inverse relationship between the cost of the wedding and the success of the marriage to where people who spent, ex- who bought ex- extravagant weddings, they tended to get divorced more often than people who kind of kept it low key and made it about family and, and um, didn't go, over, couldn't go off the deep end with it. Which I, I guess the reason that comes to mind is 
there's an attitude about that, about marriage that you go into and you can go into it with, we're putting on a show for Instagram and our friends. And again, that's not new behavior. Like that, that's very old behavior, the big extravagant wedding to impress the community. It's just that now the community is bigger. There's that versus we're getting married because we are on a mission together. We want to build a family or whatever it is, but we're, we're building something together. And in my experience, those kind of marriages tend to be a little more, they tend to be a lot more low key in terms of the extravagance of the wedding. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like this uh, from Primal Studies. Lots of women want to have a wedding, but not a marriage. Yeah, I think there's some truth to that. Yeah, I like that. That's a good one. But there are also a lot of women who want to have a marriage. They want to be in the role of wife and mother. And mm-hmm. those are the ones why, to look for, probably. Why do you think that nowadays is so looked down upon, like being just a wife and a mother? What oh, if, Feminism. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 I mean, to me, what you know, that's what women are made for. And, you know, I might get a lot of shit for saying that, but what a beautiful thing to be a wife and a mother. Yeah. You know, it's very natural. It's very normal. Yeah. But feminism, the, the big lie of feminism is that you can have it all. You can bring home the bacon and fry it of a pan. You can you can be the mother and the wife and the, the girl boss and all that. And you can't. You got to make trade-offs in life, especially women, because the timeline is so much shorter for women. Mm-hmm. Um, as I didn't make up the rules. It's just how it is. They have a shorter timeline. And no, you can't have it all in life. And I think that's something that men understand more innately than women and i'm not sure why that is but i think men have a better grasp of the fact that you have to make trade-offs in life there are limited you have limited years and limited days and limited time and limited resources but feminism comes along and it says to women well you can have it all and then when that turns out not to be the case then feminism i guess for the purposes of not being wrong it then shames women for Wanting to be a wife and a mother instead of a corporate slave. Mm-hmm. Why? I, mean, I don't know why anyone would want to be a corporate slave. But yeah, yeah. I mean, I from what I've seen is women say, "Oh, I don't want to. I don't want somebody telling me what to do." But in corporate world, their <laughs> boss is telling them what to do. I yeah, mean, that's the reality. So it's not like you're a slave to your home. You're actually a slave to your job. You're a slave to the world out there where you could be having a good home life and creating a good, a great family and a great home life. Yeah. And feminism mischaracterizes marriage too, as this thing where, you know, it's, it's run by the patriarchy and, you know, you're you're just going to be a slave to this guy. I I don't know any successful marriages that are like that. (laughs) That's funny. Um, So I guess one more thing, and then I'm going to open up the panel here and see if anybody wants to come on and ask questions, or if you have a question in the chat, go ahead and, go ahead and throw it out there. But um, why do women, from my understanding and my, basically my studying research is that women initiate most divorces and breakups. Why is that? I think there's a lot of reasons for it. One, so let me just run through the reasons that I'm aware of. One being that women are more prone to unhappiness. They're more prone, they're higher in trait neuroticism. 
It's not good or bad. It's just kind of how we are. And actually, there's a survival value to women being higher in trait neuroticism. And there's a good book out there called Warriors and Warriors and Warriors that talks about some of the psychological differences between men and women and how women benefit from being a little more prone to depression and anxiety or how not how women benefit, but how it advances the species that women women have these these tendencies. So bottom line is we know like it's indisputable. Women are more prone to low mood and anxiety. And so they can bring that into a marriage. They can, they're, they're likelier to be, they're likelier than men to be unhappy in a marriage. So that's one. Uh, two is, what was the second one that I was thinking about the other day? I'll, I'll set it aside. Another one, and I, th- I think this might be changing a little bit, is just incentives because we know that historically family court has been biased toward women. They get the money, they get the, they get the kids. And so a woman, even though divorce is not fun for women, like no, no sane woman wants to get divorced and have to explain that to all their friends and family and, and see their kids without, you know, see their kids' lives disrupted. Like women don't want divorces. Healthy ones don't. They're like that's not what they set out to do. Um, but at the same time, they are less disincentivized to get a divorce when things get bad, whereas men are more incentivized to try to hold it together so that they can keep contact with their kids and so that they don't get cleaned out. And so, so there are a couple of possibilities for, for why, but I think it's, uh, you know, it's a complicated question. I don't have a quick answer for it. Okay. And then, you know, it's one of your tweets recently, I think it was the past couple of days that had to do with SSRIs. And I do know for a fact from personal experience that there are a ton of women, especially I'll say more along the lines in your 30s, 40s, upper, who are on antidepressants and SSRIs. If anybody doesn't know what an SSRI is, could you tell everybody? It's an it's an antidepressant, it's a ser- selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor, which which means it just leaves a little more serotonin in the synapses between in, in the synapses of, of your brain. So the the re- what I t- had tweeted was in response to a study, a fairly big study that came out recently that questions the serotonin reuptake hypothesis or the serotonin hypothesis for depression, which says that we get depressed because we don't have enough serotonin. And this hypothesis actually got started when a drug company a long time ago made a little cartoon illustration of serotonin. (laughs) So it was like a marketing concept Mm -hmm. of two... In this advertisement, you had two neurons like this, like cartoon neurons and little red dots that were supposed to represent serotonin. And there wasn't enough red dots between the two neurons. And so the person's depressed and it's complete marketing nonsense. But it really took off as a concept. And it wasn't just that alone. But the idea that depression is caused by a lack of serotonin or insufficient amount of serotonin. And so we came up with this class of drugs that supposedly... um, increases the the amount of serotonin but the problem is your brain always adjusts so if you if you increase something it's going to downregulate it gets kind of complicated but anyway i wrote the tweet because this study came out i haven't looked at the study closely i only read the the uh, abstract so far but it's really questioning this this hypothesis and it's saying you know we've looked at a ton of data and there's really nothing that supports this idea that you get depressed because you don't have enough serotonin and there are people who are really upset about that message. And they're, I, I think they're upset because everybody is on them. I yeah, mean, there's, that's part of it. Yeah. 
Yeah. Do you think that it really does make a difference? I think people want a pill for everything. The SSRIs are really complicated. I'm not the best person to talk about it. I mean, I can, I can speak about it up to a point. And one of the big questions about SSRIs is just the placebo effect. Um, and the fact that it does change something in your brain, we don't really know what it changes. And we know that whatever it changes, your brain, your brain down regulates then so that it's not, after a while, it's not really doing anything, according to the studies I've seen, that your brain adjusts to the SSRIs and to the, to the point where it's, it's, you're just back to where you were before, you're back to your baseline. But now if you go off them, you're going to go through some pretty miserable uh, withdrawals because your brain is downregulated. Mm-hmm. Okay, everybody, just so you know, I pinned the uh, the link to the chat. So if you want to come on, I do. It's time for some questions. And I do have a question from, uh, it was from David Little, Deacon Little. He said, why do insecure couples exclude, exude condescending attitudes to single people? Why do insecure couples exude condescending attitudes to single people. Hmm. What do you make of that question? Help me understand it. Um, I think, I think what he's trying, I mean, from what I'm getting from it is that like, kind of like the, what somebody would say to me, Oh, why haven't you settled down? Why aren't you in a relationship? Uh, Yeah. That kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I hear what you're saying. Yeah, I'm not sure what that is. It could be a range of things. It could be, hey, I'm happy and I want you to be happy too. Or it could be, hey, I'm miserable and I want you to be miserable too. (laughs) Yeah, that's a good one. I mean, you know, when somebody asked me that, oh, why don't you settle down? I said, well, you said the magic word, settle. So, (laughs) um, and I, and, and, you know, I, I do think, um, I do think that, uh, I do think that people do settle and that's something I will never do again. I've done it. You know, I was one of the lucky ones when I went through my divorce. God, it's been probably close to 30 years. I had the easiest divorce there was. Like, hey, we're not, you know, we did. It's not like we didn't get along. We just, there was just nothing there after a couple of years. So I did have the easiest divorce ever. It, it couldn't get any easier. Just, you know, here, sign a quick claim deed. Let's meet at the courthouse. And it was over. That's the way to do it if you have to do yeah. it. No kids involved, anything like that. So it was, it was simple. It was simple. I made a, um, <clears throat> just basically said, okay, this is how much I'll give you. You know, I paid for everything as it was, and she agreed and signed the quick claim deed for the house, and that was it. So um, I don't have Good. a big, I don't have a big, big divorce story. So in fact, Good. Uh, I don't yeah, like big I, divorce stories. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, you know, I don't have that. Uh, that story where I can tell everybody, I wish everybody could go through it as easily as I did. You know, we just knew it was over. So, but yeah, anybody want to jump on the panel, um, feel free to come and ask uh, Dr. Sean Smith a question, or if you have any questions in the, um, in the chat, um, throw them out there now for sure. So anyways, I'm just, I want to go ahead real quick, uh, Sean and welcome everybody. got, Primal studies here. Good to see you, Uncle Guns. Always, I've got the uh, got the best mods. In fact, um, I've got to uh, where is it? I've got to make uh, primal studies a mod. Primal studies, you're a mod, just so you know. 
Um, Peg Bell, good to see you. Primal Man is not Primal Studies. Um, we got 21 Studios, of course, in the house. We've got Karen in the house. Good to see you. Nadine Warren, good to see you. I don't know who you are, but welcome here. Gonzo School. Let me just go back. Uh, Troy Dustin, good to see you. I don't think I've seen you here before. Who else did I see here? Lop, good to see you. Scott Appleton, good to see you. Yeah, a lot of new faces, or I might not recognize you. If I don't, um, welcome anyway. So, but yeah, oh, we got uh, Michael Foster. Good to see you, Michael Foster. You're welcome to come on. I dropped a, uh, uh, I dropped a link. So anybody wants to come on and talk with Dr. Sean Smith, you're welcome. Laxican, good to see you, my man. Yeah, welcome, welcome, welcome. Um, oh, here we go. We got a question from Twenty One Studios. Yeah, I was just looking at that one. Twenty One Studios. It sounds like a shady outfit, but I like the yeah. question. <laughs> Yeah, go for it. So the question is, have your views on cluster B disorders changed since you started practicing? Yeah, in the sense that um, they've they've matured. And I, and when I came out of graduate school, I, I had a little bit of exposure to it, you know, working in prisons and so forth, and, and certainly with some of my clients outside of prisons. But it was all kind of academic to me until... I, I had a few clients that really put me through the ringer and that, that had some real challenging personalities. And I think there are two kinds of people in the world. There are the people who can tell you about being on the receiving end of, of a personality disorder, for lack of a better term. And then there are the people who've gone through it. And Can you explain what a cluster B disorder is? Right. Yeah. Good question. So cluster B comes from the, the old DSM. It's, it's old terminology from the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. Uh, the cluster B is a per, what they call the personality disorders. I don't like that that term personality disorder. I prefer personality style because that doesn't matter. It's just, it's just disorder so black and white, whereas style, you get a little more shades of gray and it, it opens your eyes to more possibilities. But the cluster B disorders are things like narcissism, antisocial personality disorder, borderline personality disorder, dependent personality disorder, that those sorts of things. So when you when you read the criteria for something like borderline personality disorder, you go, oh yeah, I kind of understand that. But when you've really been on the receiving end of it and you've spent a lot of time in it being confused and disorienting and not knowing what the hell is going on, then you get a, a real sense of, oh, okay, I, I, I get how this works from the inside. And, you know, I got a little, little taste of that when I was working in prisons with some of the anti, you know, Clear, obviously, there's some antisocial personality disorders in there, and got, I got a good sense of how what it's like to be on the receiving end of somebody, or just on, just on the other end of a relationship with somebody who's um, who's got that personality style. And I, by relationship, I just mean you know like friends or, or colleagues, mm -hmm. or you know I'm a psychologist and you're an inmate, that kind of thing. But when you've really been on the receiving end of it, and this is what a lot of people who are coming out of divorce, male or female, they've been with somebody who really did have a, a, a seriously challenging personality, like borderline traits, antisocial traits. It takes a long time to wrap your head around what happened, how it got into your life, how do you prevent it from happening again. And one of the beautiful things 
about this world that we're in now is that there's so much information out there about these and some of us good, some of us bad, but like um, Richard Grant, and I think he's going to be a 21 this year. He's yep. brilliant at talking about what it's like to be on the receiving end of this, of some kind of personality disorder so that you can say, Oh, I, I identify with that. I understand what he's saying because that's what I'm experiencing. And um, he's a great resource and there's other great resources out there too. But in answer to the question, I would say that my view has just matured and I understand it better than I used to. Okay. One, one thing that I've noticed too is in, we'll say in this sphere and we have a lot of guys that you throw around these terms. They've gone through a bad relationship or a divorce and Hey, I'm guilty of it. Oh, she's BPD. All, <laughs> right. of, a sudden, all of a sudden I can analyze this. I'm, I'm an expert. Because those terms are thrown around so much where I think what it does is there's certain, you know, certain content creators and channels that will will always, in other words, to me, they don't they don't hold the man accountable. Okay. Mm. What they're doing is they're just giving a man an out. Well, it wasn't you, it was she's BPD. Right. I've seen so many guys diagnose their relationships where they have no, no, just no qualification to even diagnose another person. Right. You know? So, I mean, I'm sure you see that. Yeah. Every, everybody, everybody on Twitter has an ex-girlfriend that's borderline, right? Yeah. And, and every woman has an ex-husband or, or an ex-girlfriend, ex-husband that is a narcissist. Yeah. yeah. I knew that was coming, a narcissist. Yeah. That's yeah. another word that's thrown out. Oh, he's a narcissist because you don't get along or something's going on. He's a narcissist. That's a big one. That's yeah. a huge one. But it does seem to fall along those gender lines. Like men will say women are borderline and women yep. will say men are narcissists. Yeah. Okay. So it's not just me. Uh, no. Yeah. So I see that all the time. Again, everybody is after being on Twitter and looking at Manosphere content for two months, you become a psychologist and you can diagnose your ex-girlfriend and all your past relationships. Yeah. You know? um, and what you was, touched on, the danger of that is that you're not looking inward. Yeah. Exactly. Well, to me, it's the accountability. To yeah. me, I don't think that, I think what happens is a lot of these content creators don't hold the men accountable. Like for me, I had to take, you know, I was the guy that came out, oh my God, she's BPD, blah, blah, blah. And then I realized, wow, I was just a complacent asshole. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't place all the blame on me, but I'm like, ah, when I backed up and took a look at things, I'm like, yeah, you know what? I was responsible for this. Also, it wasn't just her. And I think that's one of the issues with a lot of Manosphere content is we're just going to throw it all in the woman's lap. Like it's all yeah. her fault. I did nothing wrong, even though I'm 250 pounds, got a beer gut, hadn't worked in two years. But, you know, it's not me. It's her. So, yeah, kind of the well, hate fault. All women are like that. Yeah. And all women are like that. That's an that's an easy out. And another easy out is do the work. And that's one that gets thrown around a lot. And that was the title of a book back in the 70s or something. I never read the book, but you know, the manuscript likes to land latch onto these pithy phrases and then and then just regurgitate them. And that one in particular, I, I hear it from lots of different guys. It's talking about doing the work of hitting the gym, making more money, becoming more attractive, and that's all good stuff. It's all great stuff. Every guy needs to be doing that. Everybody guys needs to be doing that work. But conspicuously absent is do the work of figuring out where you're fucked up. 
Mm-hmm. Like do some therapy and figure out what your relationship patterns are. You don't even have to do therapy. Just read and 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 do some introspection. Figure out what you're bringing to your relationships because there are patterns. Some of them are good. Some of them are bad. And it's useful to know these things. And it's a lot of work to figure this stuff out. But that part never gets thrown around well, in this the is, community. Again, anybody get this book right here? The, and I'm going to bring up a part in this book. I remember a lot. This is my favorite book. There's one part in that book where you had said, go back and ask the women that you've had relationships with. Yeah. This wasn't even my idea. This was a client that did that. What a great idea. And how many guys would have the balls to do that? Not saying you're going to get. When, When I read that, I'm like, well, if a woman is disgruntled at you, she might say you're an asshole. But I think take it, take it as data. Mm-hmm. everything is data. And then what you do with the data is up to you. But I like that. I like that, how you put that, but go ahead and talk on that. Well, the, this client that came up with that, he, he just wanted to know what, what were his patterns. And so he went out and he asked women and none of the women that he asked, and he, I don't know how many he asked, but there were several ex-girlfriends. None of them would have said that he was an asshole because he wasn't an asshole. But he just wanted to know why, what he brought to the relationships that made that worked and didn't work, and what a gutsy thing to do. Yeah, yeah, that 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 really is. But I don't think a lot of guys could do that. Um, I really don't. I think a lot of guys would be afraid of that because, to me, it's like it's basically what's happening is um, I have said this before, and I think that this is pretty accurate in this whole description of what we're talking about. That if you don't hold a mirror up to your face somebody else is going to do it for you mm-hmm. kind of thing. Yeah. That's the description of that. So, but uh, I've got one more question here from 21 studios. What is your view professionally and philosophically on CPTSD complex PTSD? So I guess we'd have to define terms first and Richard Grant is another guy that he, again, to bring him up again, he's very good at talking about, these these experiences so the way i understand complex ptsd is you're just having repeated experiences that's teaching you that the world is a really dangerous and unsafe place and uh, that manifests in all kinds of different ways for people so professionally my stance is that yeah some people go through some really ugly shit and they go through it repeatedly and and it just starts to really shape the way they view the world Philosophically, um, yeah, I, don't, I don't know, just that it's out there and that the world is, it can really kick you repeatedly. Well, so here's the philosophical side of that, that when you have this, this experience that the world is hard and cruel and mean, and people, you know, particularly kids, they don't choose that experience that's thrust upon them. But that when that becomes your worldview, then you go out and you recreate it over and over again. And you, it, it all becomes a big self-fulfilling repeating prophecy where you're just repeating the kinds of relationships and the kinds of experiences that were initially thrust upon you. But now you're the one choosing them. And it's not, you know, you don't even know you're choosing them. There's nothing malicious about it. There's nothing stupid about it. It's just that, you know, this is what you're repeating for yourself. Yeah. I think um, Richard Grannon is kind of the, isn't he, we call him an expert on the PTSD kind of thing? I, know I don't know what I'd call him an expert on. I, I just know that he's he's 
brilliantly articulate about talking about bad experiences and how they affect you and bad personalities and how they affect you. Uh-huh. Yeah. So um, we're going to start wrapping it up. If anybody else has any questions, go ahead and drop them in the chat. I do have the link there if you want to come on and ask Dr. Sean a, uh, a question. If not, we're going to start wrapping it up. Um, again, tonight was after the disaster, which means, you know, after the divorce, the breakup, we went, you know, earlier in the stream, if you're if you're just coming in now, we did go over the difference between like a breakup and a divorce. And, and you know, as far as like a breakup to me would be a relationship, whether you're, we call, it's like my dad said, it's like you said earlier, shacking up. Or we call it cohabitating, whatever. I guess that's a that's a, a better word for it. I guess nowadays, but um, but shacking up, that would be considered a breakup to me. And a divorce is something different to me. And I think you did agree with me that a divorce you do have more invested. You have more more time invested, whether it's kids, money. Now you're going to go into divorce court and everything else. So, but um, okay, I got a question from Guns here. This is a question. Why do a large group of men get traumatized, come to the sphere, soak in all information, then go back into a relationship, i.e. repeat the bad behavior? That's a great question. And it, I want to hear what you think about this too, Tony, but I'll, I'll give you my, my sense of it. That what I see is, is not, is a little bit different than that. I see guys who get into... See, he didn't say red pill specifically. He said sphere. So I'm, I'm going to talk about red pill specifically because that's what I've what I've seen is that guys will get into the red pill ideology. I know they get pissed off when I call it an ideology, but I don't care. It's an ideology um, that they'll they'll start soaking up that red pill ideology and those red pill voices. And it's really useful up to a point, but there comes a point where it starts really getting in their way. It's, and I've had guys tell me over and over that not only did it interfere with their relationships with women when they started taking it too seriously, that it started interfering with their work relationships and their family relationships. And it just kind of started screwing them up. So I've met a lot of guys who've, who've taken up the red pill ideology and then set it aside. Like they, they took some useful things out of it. They set it aside and then they were able to start putting themselves back together. It's almost like they, they swung from over here, blue pill all the way over to red pill, seriously red pill and then they needed to come back to a little more reasonable and measured understanding of relationships and start you know looking at some other information that's one thing i've seen and i've certainly heard cases of guys who get stuck there mm-hmm. in in the red pill and just and what that looks like to me is resentful toward women angry at women externalizing all the blame toward women and and simultaneously having women up on a pedestal it's, it's a really weird combination of hating someone that you, that you idealize it's, it's a, exactly but we're going to teach you how to constantly screw as many as you can yeah but we're still gonna tell you to not be in a relationship but you have to hate them but you have to love them so it's it's kind of strange to me. yeah 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 but in answer to this question specifically why do people soak up the information then repeat repeat their relationship another way to say that is why do people repeat their patterns mm-hmm. and people repeat their patterns because they're for any number of reasons they're comfortable they're familiar they know how to operate in whatever relationship they've been op- kind of relationship they've been operating in and it's just really hard and uncomfortable to change your patterns 
Yeah, I'll give you I'll give you my two cents on this. And at first when I saw it, when he said repeat bad behavior, okay, that's specific. I think that that guys need when they do come into this space, I think I think it's become not a learning process. It's become, like you said, more of an ideology. And I think that's the issue. In other words, I think when guys come in, again, the entrance fee to this, a lot of these spaces is trauma. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the reality. That is, I mean, just people that I know, including myself, that is just a, it's just a fact that trauma is the number one reason why guys come into this space. Um, to me, repeating, to me, you should be able to get knowledge, information, and you should be able to cultivate a healthy relationship with this information, not repeating bad behavior. So I think if you get stuck in an ideology and you can't think for yourself and you have to have someone else think for you, that's the problem. Uh, too many guys are stuck in the cult of personality and have to have their content creator think for them because they can't think for themselves. So that's kind of my take on it. That's my view when I stand back and look at this stuff. Yeah. And I'm not a big, I used to be a big consumer of content. And I'm not. There's only certain things that I watch, you know, and there's only certain people that I follow. And again, I'm going to tell everybody, follow Dr. Sean Smith. I have the link down there. Check out his, his, his um, especially his Twitter, which is fire. His Twitter is always just, just one of the best, just one of the best. So, but um, yeah, that's kind of my take on that as far as repeating bad behavior is because they're stuck in an ideology. Yeah. And, and repeating bad behavior, I, I I don't know if I assume that they he's talking about their behavior. So they, these guys are repeating behavior that didn't work for them before. Mm -hmm. And why do people relapse? Well, that, that's a complicated question, but people relapse all the time when they're trying to change a habit. In fact, if you're if you're out there and you're trying to quit drinking, um, relapse is part of the deal. And you, relapse is something that you use to gather information and, and figure out what led you to the relapse. And I, I've heard a statistic that most people who try to quit drinking, they relapse seven times before they, before it really sticks. And if you're afraid of relapse, then it becomes something that you can't tolerate and, and then you can't learn from it. But if you embrace it as part of the, part of the project, then you can learn from it and get stronger each time. Mm -hmm. yeah. I think one of the main things too, is like this whole, the whole, kind of ideologies that guys fall into again is the cult of personalities they have to listen to their leader they don't question anybody and i think that's a big issue in spaces like this is that there is no questioning so when you do question somebody you either get blocked or you get piled on and if you do have a legitimate question you get either blocked or piled on there is yeah. no in between or, you, or told you that, that you screwed up and you didn't do it right. And so you need to sign up for our next class or whatever. Um, exactly. Yeah. Let me uh, look at any more comments here. So any more questions? If not, we're going to wrap it up. If somebody wants to come on the panel. Um, oh, we got a uh, question from Michael Foster. We'll get that one. Do you believe that emotional intelligence is a valid or at least a helpful concept? It's a concept that showed up in the, the research, I don't know when, I'll, I'll say 10, 15 years ago, this idea of emotional intelligence being a, a counterbalance to um, IQ, which uh, that's, IQ is a fascinating field. 
um, but that people would have this emotional intelligence, which I guess gives them an ability to read people and makes them more empathetic and, and able to navigate social situations as I understand it. And that it's something that can be measured and crystallized like IQ. And it's one of the many things that have shown up lately that just doesn't really replicate. And I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to be able to adequately or intelligently talk about it much beyond that other than, I don't know, I think there, there are people who are more uh, adept with other people and there are people who are less adept with other people. And that's not really an answer. And emotional intelligence is a thing that is a, is a notion that hasn't been able to really be replicated. Emotional <laughs> intelligence is a thing that... Welcome, Michael Foster. What's going on here? Do you want to uh, elaborate on that question? Oh, you're muted. There we go. How about now? No? Perfect. Perfect. Okay. Got it. How you doing, um, Michael? Man, I can't hear you guys. Hmm. Can you hear us now? No? I'll jump back on. Well, maybe he can bring a little more context to that question. Sure. So I, to me, I don't get it because I really don't, I don't know of what he's saying when he means it. Maybe you can tell me what emotional intelligence means. Not really. And it's a shortcoming on my part because I haven't really read much on it. I just, there's so much out there to keep track of in my profession. And if I see something like emotional intelligence that doesn't look like it's really panning out, I tend to kind of ignore it. And I've, I've kind of ignored emotion, the topic of emotional intelligence. Yeah. I mean, we always see the, you know, in this, you know, in these spaces, we see that men are, you know, men are logical, women are emotional. Um, I, I, you know, I'm a believer that we control our emotions and you should delay them. That's kind of my belief on that. So, but Michael Foster, do you want to give us a little more context on this question? Yeah, sure. So I was reading up on it. So according to this person, some psychologist says reading online. So let's just let me preface this with the, the deep, the depth of the research here. Okay. Um, that the four main components, they said that makes up emotional intelligence is self-awareness, self-management, social awareness, and relationship management, kind of broad categories. But one thing that um, has stuck out to me a lot in, in interacting with I, I want to say it's largely men 35 and down. It seems to be like there's a break somewhere uh, culturally, socially, somewhere in their mid-30s um, as like a heavier dis distribution of guys that have what we think of like autistic tendencies or, or social awkwardness or whatever. And a lot of it seems to be just a, a basic lack of self-awareness, right? Of how they come across, how their actions are perceived, how their tones are perceived. Um, and, and there's just, it seems to be a really, a deep disconnect from how other people perceive you. So, and then, so the concept of emotional intelligence, I'm like trying to think of a way to explain to guys, like here's an area you need to grow in, here's some steps to take like a broad thing to call it so that that i think that's um uh I, I think that's the thing that i started what started me down that road 
is trying to help these guys. So I come from a world of a theological world called uh, Reformed or Calvinist. And so they're, they're depicted as kind of austere in a lot of movies and books when they come up. And there's some truth to that, where these are people that I think uh, are very, can be very intellectual. They can be very abstract in the thinking, theoretical, and kind of lack a um, ability to interact with folks at a, what we might call an emotional or an intuitive level. And so it's something I run into in my church circles, but I'm also seeing guys that would say that are uh, lacking a sort of emotional depth to them that's not good. I'm not worried about guys like crying every time they see a kid in on TV or something. That's all I'm talking about here. But I'm just talking about ability to have a proper level of sympathy or, or, or be able to read what's going on. It's a problem in the sales world to not be able to read a room. It's like pretty incredible. Uh, you know, in my, my life, both as a pastor and as a, a professional in sales and business, being able to feel other people be able to sense them is huge to, to making things happen. So, but then I see, I've seen some pushback against EQ or emotional intelligence and some of their critiques at some level resonate. I'm just kind of at the beginning of this and that's all you want, Tony. So I thought I'd ask you. Yeah. Great question. I, um, any more feedback on it, Sean? Just that, um, I wonder how much of, how much of what you're seeing is just, men maturity like would men from a hundred years ago say yeah these guys under 30 they're, they're just not getting it like they're not getting the, the they're not getting on with people the way they should be i don't know i wonder how much of that is just male development where we know that the for men in particular that the prefrontal cortex doesn't really male development s- where stop develop it doesn't really fully develop until late 20s right and, and then testosterone starts to two things number one it starts to level off a little bit but also you start to learn how to handle it a little better because that takes a long long time to figure out how to handle so yeah i think i need to look more into this emotional intelligence because i keep hearing that whatever they've been studying is not replicating but at the same time there is this thing called social skills and there is this thing called the ability to navigate relationships all the the four things that you know those are real things so yeah yeah well, it sounds like you're in a similar spot that I am then. <laughs> so that's yeah. not probably a bad place to be, I imagine. So. Right. But bottom line is that guys need to learn these four things that you just laid out. Yeah. Um, at some how point. Do you, how life. do you teach a guy? Um, how do you teach a guy self-awareness? Yeah, I think historically, you guys tell me if you, if you agree with this, but a lot of it is men just interacting with men. I'll use myself in this example. I was a dick when I was in my 20s. I was an arrogant because I was insecure, but I was arrogant. I was kind of an asshole. And there were men that I worked for that gave me self-awareness and they did it. They did it kind. They were kind, but they were direct. And I think that that's a lot of how, like that's how the military functions. That's one of the functions of the military, so forth. Boy Scouts, like men teach each other these, these kind of skills, but we don't sit down with a book or a class, you know, a chalkboard or anything. It's just sort of like snapping each other into place. Quick comment on that. Very quick. So here's my theory. My working theory so far is that I do think guys are maturing in some of these areas uh, more slowly than in past generations, but it's because of the, uh, because of the lack of fathers and because of the lack of true brotherhood. 
And because I think those social skills are cannot be taught through charisma on command YouTube videos. Mm-hmm. You can't do that. You, you only learn that from guys. You only learn, like, I can be mean. I, like, I can tease my kids sometimes, right? But, they, but I'm teasing them for their good. I actually love them. I love them. But they, they, you learn you learn that crap on the job site. You know, you, you go up, like I used to this guy, tell my, I, when I was an electrician, I'd go up, sta- up a uh, ladder and I was up the ladder too long. And he's like, what are you doing, man? Don't make a project of it. You know, I say, don't make a project of it. Make me so mad. But you just like these guys are right in your case and you just you, you develop the ability to read, you know, read the emotions where they're going. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Yeah, no, I you know what? I think the, the real world. I tell a lot of guys this is that get out in real world situations. Us talking right here. Keep going on panels is different. That's why I encourage guys to come to 2121 convention and meet Sean Smith and Michael Foster and Elliot Hulse and have real world situations. Conversations like this are great, but it's not the same. It's not the same me sitting here with Michael Foster now and talking on a screen or Sean Smith. It's way different when we talk in person. It's 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 a different thing. So guys get out in the real world and and meet people. You know, anybody too. I got links for the 21 convention in my uh, description of the video. Anyways, I want to make welcome Primal. Primal. Hey, hey, everybody. Salute. Yeah. Hey, Sean, thanks for coming on. I just really enjoy your perspective and hearing you speak about these important issues, because I think, like Tony said, the admission to these spheres, if you will, is often trauma and bad experiences. So thanks for coming up and sharing your thoughts. It's much appreciated. Um, And then I wanted to echo, I'm at the airport, so I didn't want to, I tried to find a quiet spot, but I've done quite a bit of training and reading up on EQ because I do work in sales. And there's a big push on it in the sales world because we find that many people in the younger generation, some of the, the kind of millennials or the Generation Z coming up, they are often lacking in the quote unquote ability to read a room. And like Michael Foster just said, it's crucial many times to know when to make a joke or when to be serious and when to play your cards close to the vest and when to kind of show your cards. And that's that's something that's lacking. And I think to your point, I think brotherhood and interaction like that michael foster is absolutely correct but i also think there's a huge element of um online being a primary mode that people connect and they lose that direct social skill of being in the same room with somebody and shaking their hand properly and looking them in the eye when they talk to them and you can't replicate that on a screen so you don't get um, that immediate feedback correct and body language is very hard to decipher on a screen as opposed to being in person with somebody because what do they say about two thirds of our communication is in our body language. So um, that's another big part of the EQ and they essentially take it. And a lot of the strategies are, they will have you do self grading on it and then they'll give you sorts of activities you can focus on in those four categories to try to improve it. And there's, there's super simple things. Some of them are like count to 10 before you say something, if you're feeling frustrated or angry, it's not groundbreaking stuff or things that haven't been put out there before, but they've kind of, I would say repackaged it into this clean format is my take on it. Yeah. Sale, uh, uh, sales EQ by Jeff Blunt's a good book on that. If you ever read it. And then when you read it, a lot of it's kind of goes all the way back to Carnegie's how to win. Yep. Friends influence exactly. Like yep. he, he definitely was an astute um, watcher of human behavior. I mean, he, it's kind of flattery and a lot of that and stuff, but still he, he seems to understand the inner workings of 
the people. And, and the fact that that book was written when it was written by Dale Carnegie makes me think that he saw a need for it back then, which means this isn't an entirely right. new problem. It right. might be aggravated by um, not enough fathers and um, looking at each other through the screen, but it's a sounds like it's a universal problem. I remember my dad having that book. See, but I'm I'm taking a sales sales uh, staff through it right now, and we argue about aspects of it. But it's it's good. No, I do think there's like there there's there's I'm trying to figure out what's different. That's always what I'm trying to figure out generationally. You know, like like I was asking an older generation, like is is times crazy or is it always crazy when you reach this age? Am I just forty? Am I just in my forties? And this is what it's like when you're forty. You're like, wow, all governments are untrustworthy or is it maybe you've just been around around long enough to have some perspective and kind of view the world not through a rose-colored glass and you kind of see things maybe for such as they are and maybe maybe that feels crazy is to kind of see the world for such as it is i don't know yeah yeah i mean that's that's really the that's the that's the original red pill as far as i'm concerned see see the world for what it is and not what you what you want it to be or what you think it is so, but, uh, Look at Sean Smith's office here. This, this is fancy. Uh, <laughs> liking this. Oh yeah, it's nothing but nothing but class around here. Yeah. <laughs> um, I do want to give a shout out to Primal Studies. You guys check out his uh, his channel for sure. Subscribe. He's usually on Sunday nights. You weren't on. This yeah, time. yeah. Sunday nights usually in the evening. Um, I've been on the road uh, the past couple of weeks for work and trips and whatnot. So it'll be a couple of weeks I won't go, but I'll get back to the normal. And maybe Tony, um, you've inspired me maybe to do a little overview of EQ because maybe that's something that people would enjoy and benefit from is just he hearing a little bit more about it. And I've read a couple books and I've taken a couple notes and taught a couple classes on it so that that could be a kind of a cool topic to go into yeah, a little no, more it's good everybody subscribe mm -hmm. to primal studies man he always has great streams on sunday evenings man it's uh i love his streams always a good topic you know again we talked about it earlier about the green line theories that was i think your last one right wasn't yeah yeah that was that was good. the last one and that was a couple of weeks ago and that was fun and i like what sean said you know and that was my take on it is I think there's something to it. Is it an exact science? No, I don't think so. But I think there's something to it. Go back and look at your old photos and you're going to judge yourself and you're going to get a laugh. And that's what I say. It's kind of fun. Yeah, it is. It is. I thought that was really interesting. It really was. But uh, Rivolino is he's another one you want to follow on Twitter. But you got I, I, some we got two two of the best Twitter feeds right here is Sean Smith. He's Iron Shrink on Twitter. I have a link to his Twitter, and I think I even have a link to Michael Foster's Twitter. But follow these guys on Twitter. If you're not on there, get on Twitter. Two of the best, two of the best, I think, on Twitter. Just some of the best content there is as far as very logical and just, and I'm going to throw it out there, two savages, too, on Twitter. <laughs> well, thanks, Tony. Yeah, I'm not that's Sean. What's going on here? Do I have to follow and refollow? Look at what? this. And I'm, I'm going to unfollow and refollow because I followed you, but man, they just are. They just not. You don't get to see. I don't. I only follow like 142 people, um, and I'm not seeing your stuff. Yeah, I'm not surprised. I don't think many people are seeing my stuff. Oh, I need to go. My you know, Twitter, Twitter might not agree with, with Sean's take on a few things, perhaps. The Twitter world might yeah, not. So they, funny, yeah, it wouldn't surprise me. I say that because when mm -hmm. I go on Twitter, I directly go to Michael Foster's 
uh, feed, and then I directly go to Sean Smith feed. I don't wait for it to come up. I click on who I want to see. You know, I click on Sean Smith. I click on Rivolino always and always click on Michael Foster. I always have a bunch of people that are I have to look at their feed just to see what they're saying. So I would I would recommend that. So but um, yeah, we're going to start wrapping it up. Any uh, any final words? Um, I'm going to go with primal studies. Yeah, no, I'll hop off. Thanks so much for having this discussion, Sean. Salute to you for coming up and talking about it because it's a tough topic, right? And it's, it's it can be a painful one for people to kind of go through their trauma and try to, how do I get to the other side and what improvements did I learn along the way and how can I implement that moving forward so I don't fall into some of the maybe same pitfalls that I had before. So thanks so much for coming on, coming on with Tony. Salute to you. Michael Foster, always appreciate your content and your take. So gentlemen, I really appreciate you. Thanks, Primal. Appreciate Good to it. meet yep. you, man. Yeah. Foster? Oh, no. No. Follow Sean on Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> you see stuff. There's my... Uh, there's yeah, my it's, it is It is truly one of the best, man. I just... I enjoy it. I really do. Well, now I feel like I got to up my game and, and get uh, some useful I, I don't think so, man. I think it's I think it's one of the most savage Twitter feeds there is. Um, just, just straight up. Just really, really good. Really good stuff. Um, I don't I think I've that. ever disagreed with you on anything that you've put on there. So, but I do enjoy it. So I hope everybody follows. I like you have access to someone trained. We live in a, a time where everyone speaks therapeutic language. Yeah. Very, it's very difficult to cut through the BS because there's some people that are like reject psychology and therapy out of hand. Well, that's not good. But at the, we, we had a couple over here that my wife and I were doing marriage counseling with, and they're just using all this therapeutic language and they leave. And my wife was like, do all young people talk that way now? And I was like, yeah, it's, that's how they're raised in school, in these public schools. And so it's nice to have someone uh, that respects the study, the science, and and I can like say, is this real? I can't tell if it's real or not. What's the studies actually say? That's that's helpful. Even if you don't know, that makes me appreciate when you say you do know uh, way more. So yeah. I appreciate well, it's more that I don't know. But yeah, it is bad. That it's unfortunate that people reject therapy out of hand. But at the same time, I get it, man. I look at my profession and I, I have a hard time finding people to recommend to. There, there are some people that are really good clinicians out there that I'm happy to recommend to, but they're all full, you know, and the ones that aren't full are kind of they're kind of goofballs. Some of them. So it's well, fair to say. Well, I'm going to go to you, Sean Smith, and any final words on tonight's tonight's talk? Yeah, just if you're if you're going through it, just don't isolate. Find find your tribe, find your family, find your friends, find some online groups of guys that are going through the same thing. But don't there's no need to go through it alone. Okay. Yeah, great advice, man. I like that. I think that's important. I think a lot of guys do that. They try to go through things alone. Like I said, you know support your brothers out there, man. Just being here. Sometimes I think people just want to be heard and it's, I get it as a man, it's man. The hardest thing you can do is reach out to another man. That is difficult. That's a difficult thing to do. Yeah. But how many times, I mean, how good does it feel to be on the receiving end of that? If one of your buddies comes to you and says, Hey man, I'm really struggling with this. I just got a, I just got unburdened for a minute. That feels great. Doesn't it? Yeah. One last thing. Okay. This, this will be my last, thought tonight there was a study that came out just really recently about how we assume that when we reach out to people they don't want to hear from us but it's just the opposite the study found that we like it when people reach out to us so don't there's no need to feel like you're a burden to your friends or family yeah 
Yeah, I, I agree with that. I mean, I get an unusual amount of um, emails since I put my email out over a year ago and an unusual amount of direct messages on Twitter and Instagram. And, you know, everybody knows that if they send me something, you know, I appreciate it. But again, you know, if you need an ear to talk, you can reach out to me. Um, you can reach out to Michael Foster. And I think your DMs are open too, right, Sean? Yeah, yeah, I do my best. Yeah. So, but um, I want to thank you for coming on tonight. It's Sean. good to see both of you guys. Michael, it's good yeah. to see you. Yeah, it, it was awesome. And Michael. I can't wait, can't wait to do it again. I'm going to end this stream. Everybody, thanks for coming in. Everybody, new faces in the chat. I do appreciate everybody joining tonight. And we will do it again sometime here in the near, near future with Sean Smith. I've got some other guests coming up soon. And uh, if you guys hang tight real quick backstage, I'm going to end this. And I will see you guys next Thursday night on Reality Check. Tonight was a great one, man. So if, you're just, if you just came in, start from the beginning. A lot of valuable a lot of valuable tidbits, a lot of gold in this stream. So appreciate everybody, and uh, y'all have a good night. Cheers.